We're looking at, continuing to look at Genesis 3, if y'all haven't been here this semester. Genesis is a book, it's inspired, God inspired Moses to write it. Moses wrote it to a group of Israelites in the desert who were awaiting God to fulfill his promises and struggling with faith. And um, Genesis, God starts at the very beginning to deal with them. And uh, Genesis 1 and 2 that we've looked at are God's description of the way the world is supposed to be, uh, how it was supposed to work, his design for it. And that's what we looked at the past couple of weeks until last week. And what we looked at is we began to look at Genesis 3. And that's where all of a sudden the design got frustrated. Where sin and evil broken in this world. And we're all acutely aware on several levels that our life and that creation is frustrated. And Genesis 3 is where we really see that come in. And we saw last week what we said is we define sin in a lot of ways. And our definition for sin is very important in order to really understand the rest of the Bible was that it was not merely an outward action. It was an outward action that was a manifestation of a change inside of Adam and Eve, that they rebelled against the authority of God, that they saw God's creation, and they saw His plan for it, and they said, I think you're wrong, and I can't trust you, and I'm going to do it the way I want it. And so that manifested itself through outward actions in the form of disobedience to His law. And there are consequences I'm going to read Genesis 3, 7 through 13. This is right after they have partaken of the fruit that was forbidden. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heels, his heel. The grass wither and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray that he would teach us. Lord, be with us now as we consider the way you begin to deal with our sin, that when it first entered in the world, uh, you don't do what we do, which is run from it and make people pay for it. But Lord, you're already exhibiting patience. And as you begin to unfold your plan for dealing with us in our sin, I pray your Holy Spirit would attend to our hearts and our minds and we would become convinced of your perfect law and your perfect love. In your name we pray, amen. Um, Jumping right into the outline without a quick, fun story that's unrelated to the sermon, serves as an illustration. Um, Because I wanted to go there... um, what we're dealing with here is the brokenness of life and the way that we cope with it and the way we deal with it. And that first point in your outline is what is your plan of salvation? What is our plan of salvation? And I wanted to argue this at first, that every decision you make, the way you schedule your classes, who you choose to room with, whether or not you choose to get a larger or smaller table package if you buy a PS2 or PS3, and whether or not you get sprinkles on your ice cream tonight, how you choose to exercise and eat, your clothing choices and your social choices, all are oriented towards one goal, and that is battling what's wrong with the world. 
trying to cope with the alienation, with the disappointment, with the estrangement, with how hard life is. And all of our choices are directed toward that one goal. And the way G.K. Chesterton said it, kind of in a very flamboyant way, but it's true, he says, every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. And what he's saying is all of our choices are looking for salvation. They're looking for a way to deal with disappointment. You don't have to be a Christian to believe this. We can all agree on this. We're all making choices. You're making choices about next semester right now, who you're going to room with, what your schedule looks like. And your choices are guided by what brings the least amount of pain into my life. What helps me avoid the harshness of the reality of life the most? And that's how you'll make those decisions. There's a deep longing in all of us for things to be right, both in the world and others and ourselves, because things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And we're not the way we're supposed to be. And the first question really is a diagnostic question for you. What is your plan of salvation? And from the text, you know, the fun way to say it is, what are your fig leaves? And we kind of asked that last week, but actually we want to explore it a little bit more before we go to the latter part of the text. Adam and Eve, sin immediately entered into the world, and their first instinct is then, okay, what do I have to do to cover up and deal with the fact that it all feels wrong now? And their fig leaves are their first attempts at covering their shame and your guilt. And all of our fig leaves, they, they're very complex. We can be very, we're very complex at creating the mechanism by which we deal with what's wrong. And it's probably some mixture of performance, whether it's school performance, professional performance, social performance. There's some way you want to present yourself to the world and perform. It has something to do with appearance. Now, you want to maybe, there are different ways people desire to appear in order to communicate some sense of security in life. It's not, we're not all trying to be some uh, cliched model. Some people are trying to be that. Some people are trying to present a, do- a different form of security. I don't have to be that. It's a, we're seeking pleasure in certain ways that allows us to escape, to feel something for a moment. Maybe we're adding some religion in there as well. It helps us feel better about ourselves morally by by performing some religious activities. And so we have this confluence of all these different fig leaves we're weaving together to cover up the brokenness and the shame and the guilt that we all live in. And in all of those things, I think there's actually fundamentally two approaches that we can take. And it's... The first approach is the liberal approach. I don't mean liberal politically. Don't start thinking about Obama and things like that. Listen to what I'm saying. The liberal approach is the way we deal with what's wrong in the world is through love. And we emphasize God's love. Love everybody. Don't blame anyone. Everybody has a legitimate excuse. We're all victims of bad parenting, right? And our parents were victims of bad parenting, right? We're victims of a bad roommate situation. I can't help it. It's an addiction. He or she pushes my buttons. See how that takes the responsibility away from us? Right? Don't blame people for their stuff, man. Don't blame people for their junk. Just love them. Don't judge anybody and they won't judge you. And that's the liberal approach, this attempt to kind of erase any sense of guilt or shame. That's completely illegitimate. And none of us really buys into it. And that's why I like the cardinal virtue of the liberal approach is love, but actually what they mean by love is being passive-aggressive withholding the external manifestation of your anger and just burning up on the inside about all the idiots that don't get it, right? (laughs) This kind of, you don't judge me and I don't judge you, nobody lives like that. But we all want to because we don't want anybody to point out our stuff. And so we take this 
It's not really a sense of love. But we take this word love and we corrupt it into this weird version of like, I'm going to step on your toes, you don't step on my toes. Let's all agree to be slightly dishonest with each other about how bad things are. And I'm going to cover my shame and deal with my guilt by easing off on everybody else. And hopefully God will ease off on me. Is your plan to approach the throne of God, the judgment seat of God, and say, I tried to be nice and not judge anybody? Is that your plan? What about Scripture permits you to think that's a good plan? The whole Old Testament is really difficult to deal with because the whole Old Testament, a large portions of it, are devoted to the fact, they're devoted to the historic reality that certain people have said, I'm going to do what I want and it's okay, and God destroys those people. And it's bloody and it's hard, and we enter into conversations with our professors and our friends trying to justify them because God's clearly not comfortable with the notion of like, hey, don't judge you, I won't, uh, I'm not going to judge you, you don't judge me, we'll do what we want, and we'll all be passive-aggressive about it. To say that, a God is, that God is a God of this kind of love has nothing to do with the Bible. This is not the kind of love that's espoused in Scripture. God judges nations that are rife with sexual immorality and idolatry. He clearly doesn't think that the answer is like, y'all, just, y'all try to be nice with each other. You have legitimate excuses. It's all okay. That's the liberal approach, but there's one approach that Jesus hates even more than the liberal approach, and that's the conservative approach. And the conservative approach is not just love everybody and let's not blame each other. The conservative approach is everybody needs to do a better job, and if you don't, you're going to pay for it. The conservative approach is the law approach. We take the law of God and emphasize the law of God and say the way I'm dealing with brokenness is I'm going to do the right things. And we take that law and we say I'm going to do the right things, and then the people who don't, they deserve what they get. And the law of God is really driven if, the, if, if this liberal approach, which is love, is really driven by fear and trying to distance yourself from guilt, uh, the, this kind of law approach, this conservative approach, is driven by guilt and pride equally. It is, I have devised ways and means and actions that I can do that make me better than other people. Whatever it is that you do right that makes you better than other people. And it loves to feel self-righteous. And you can be self-righteous about anything. You see, actually... Anybody can be conservative about anything, about your morality, about your food, about your dieting choices, about your intellect, about your wit, about your body, about your social groupings, about your race. And the conservatives hate the liberals, and they love it when people make bad choices and have to pay for it. Right? The girls who get loose on the weekend who are drinking, they kind of deserve what they get. And that's the conservative approach. That's the law approach. Is your plan to approach the throne of God and plead, I tried really hard and I did better than most people? Is that your plan? Jesus speaks very harshly to those people. And he says, on that day, it'll be worse for you than even Sodom and Gomorrah, even the very immoral nations. And the truth is, we're actually all conservative and we're liberal in different areas. We're usually actually conservative in the areas we think we're good at. We crush everybody by our standards, and we're liberal in the areas that we're bad at. We kind of let everybody else slide a little bit. And there's a mixture of all those things and all the different aspects of life. Now, why are we prone to do this? Why are we prone to either law or to love 
in order to justify and hide our guilt. And it's this. It's because we want to hush the loud thunder of the law. To hush the crushing sense of inadequacy and the loneliness we feel, our disappointment and our neediness and our ineptitude, and to quiet our shame and to cover our guilt. We're doing exactly what Adam and Eve first did, the second sin entered into the world, trying to cover it up. One is by saying, well, if I just say guilt doesn't exist, then I've dealt with it. And the other one is by saying, if I recognize guilt, but I compensate for it. And there's three problems. There's three problems with these approaches. The first problem, the problem with the liberal approach is this. It actually doesn't take love seriously at all. It claims the title of, we focus on the love of God. But love and compassion does not mean a free pass on sin and evil and foolishness. If somebody was physically ill, physically ill, is it love to let them languish in their illness? No. Standing aside and letting them languish in their illness is actually the highest form of hate. It would be indifference. If someone's spiritually ill and morally ill, is it love to let them languish in their illness? Absolutely not. It's the highest form of hate. It's indifference. It's not mercy to not confront your roommate about whatever it is they're struggling with, their addiction to porn, their body image issues, whatever it is. That's not mercy to not confront them. That's hate. It's indifference. It's letting people languish in their sin and fallenness. The problem with the liberal love approach to dealing with our sin and guilt is that actually it's hate. It's actually cowardly indifference. That's the first problem. The second problem is the problem with the conservative approach. The conservatives actually hate the law. They claim to keep it, but Jesus actually addresses them very uh, directly in the Gospels. In Matthew 23, they preach, but they don't practice what they preach. And they tie up heavy burdens on other people, but they don't lift a finger. They don't actually carry the burdens. Because, see, here's the law. The law is to love God with everything that is you all the time and love your neighbors yourself. That's the law. Who's presupposing that they're keeping that? So you can't. And so what the conservatives have to do is they have to water the law down into some keepable, easily, socially acceptable behaviors. And so I'm better than everybody because I made the right schooling choices. I'm better than everybody because I don't do the, the stereotypical thing college students do on the weekend. No, no, no. God wants you to love him with all of your being and love your neighbors yourself. That's the law. Are you doing that? See, the conservatives actually don't take the law seriously. They claim the law, but it's actually the thing they're taking more lightly than anybody else. And they know that in their heart, it's full of hate, it's full of envy and bitterness. And they love watching other people suffer for their fullness. And if the liberals are cowardly and different, the conservatives are lying hypocrites. And the truth is that's in all of our hearts. But those are the first two problems, and that's not the most dire aspect It's not the most dire problem to any of those approaches. The third problem is this. The liberal solution is, if I pretend guilt doesn't exist, then we're all okay. okay. The conservative solution is, if I make the law achievable and I do it, then I'm okay. And the third problem, which which is a result of both, is that both of them rely on you and your work as the agent for your salvation. The way to deal with sin is for me to take love and to turn it into license. If I just don't blame anybody else, I'm okay. The way to deal with darkness and sin is for me to take the law and turn it into legalism, and if I just do the right things, I'll be okay. 
This is the final application for the existential crisis I asked you to have. Here's the final application. Behold, this is the one true God. That's the application. Behold, what we have in Scripture is the one true God, and He is good. Now, that's a frustrating application to get, right? Oh, you didn't tell me what to do, right? Because that's what we want. That's what I want to give you, because then I'll be cool and everything, and I can make everybody perfect and all that kind of stuff, and I'll follow the program to become really righteous, and we'll all love each other and all that kind of stuff, and we'll scoff at everybody else. You want to know, okay, what do I do? How do I stop, right? Or how do I start? How do I make it better? How far can I go? What's the line I can go to? What do I say to make it better? How do I not be proud? How do I get along with my girlfriend, boyfriend, parents? Y'all ask me all questions all the time. I get them. They're good questions to ask. You ask me all the times of, uh, what do I do to fix this? And you see there's a common element in all of those questions. And that's why the application is what it is. The common element in all of the questions is this. You. What do I do? The fact that you think you are the agent of change in your life. And the good thing is, there's some people in here, maybe many of us, who are honest enough to admit that we finally despaired and we feel like we are powerless to change. We've been trying it for 18, 20, 31 years, and we haven't changed. Oh, we look a little bit different on the outside, and we've tricked some people into thinking we're changing. But we haven't been able to change ourselves. You've tried it all, and it might have worked temporarily, but you found out you're still a bitter, guilty person. And after the novelty of your new system wore off, you, hit, you ran into yourself again. And you now know you can't change. But you might still be a hopeless cause because all you're doing now is wandering around and saying, ah, me, like I can't change, I can't do it. And that's why the application to your existential crisis is this. Behold the one true God who is good. That's the application. Do you see what the application is? Stop looking at yourself. For once, look up and behold the one true God. And you see, what's happening in Genesis 3 is God is stepping in and God is interrupting what we started when our first parents fell and brought sin and brokenness and darkness in the world. The Bible should have ended, and if any of us were God, it would have ended at Genesis 3, 6. They would have eaten the fruit and we would have done what we do in all of our relationships when people sin against us. We're done with it. The fact that there are more verses past Genesis 3, 6 is enough cause for rejoice. It is grace right there. But God doesn't do what our parents have done in their marriages. God doesn't do what we've done in our roommate relationships, in our friendships. He doesn't get sinned against and walk away. The Bible keeps going. It goes to verse 7. In verse 7, we see Adam and Eve doing what we're trying to do, which is cover up their sin, and their, ga- their sin and their guilt and their shame. And what God is doing for us, and this is why the application is, Behold, this is the one true God. God is saying, Now I want you to see what I'm doing. I want you to see what I'm doing. And the first thing that He does, not only does the story not stop and go on, the first, thing, the first picture we get of God is God looking for His people. What do we do when we sin against somebody? You're, again, whoever it is in your life that you frustrated that you've sinned against, we screen their cell phone call, right? We do the exact same thing Adam and Eve did. They ran from the person they sinned against. In the first picture we get of God, verse 3, 8, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves 
that the Lord God called out to man and said to him, where are you? God's first act is chasing after his people that are running away in shame. There's grace right there. We're already beginning to see his enduring patience, patience that none of us have. And God interrupts. He not only is he not cut off the story, and not only is he to continue to pursue us, we're going to jump ahead and we're going to talk about verses 14 and 15 for the remainder of the time. Um, this is where God steps in and says, here's how the story goes now. It's not over, and I'm coming for you. And now let me tell you how it ends. And we get the ending in verses, the ending of the whole story. Genesis, uh, the book of Revelation is actually a commentary on Genesis 3.15, in case you're wondering. This is the ending of the story right now. The way Sinclair Ferguson says it is actually, the story ends at Genesis 3.15, and the rest of the Bible is an exalted footnote to Genesis 3.15. Here's what God says. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's the story. At the end of the book of the Bible, uh, at the end of the Bible, John in the book of Revelation, what is he talking about? He's talking about a war between Jesus and a dragon. And guess what John calls the dragon? The old serpent. In 1 John 3, 8, he says, this is why Jesus came, to destroy the works of the devil. From 3.15, for the rest of the Bible, God's just explaining verse 3.15. Uh, chapter 3, verse 15. And this is God stepping in. And this is God saying, it's not going that way any longer. I'm stepping in and I'm fixing this. And what he's doing, what God's plan of salvation is this. He's sending a champion. What's going on in these verses? God says to the serpent, Because you've done this, curse to you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and eat the dust. You shall eat all the days of your life. Before even telling the plan, he says this. Before I even get into the conflict that's about to occur and the way I'm about to save the world, you need to know this. It's not going to be a fair fight. That's what verse 14 is. It's not a fair fight. Not meaning it's unjust, but just saying, Satan doesn't have a chance. These words here, we normally, I remember reading this as a kid and thinking like, oh, so the snake crawled around on legs and like his legs evaporated at this point and all the snakes are cursed. It's not what's being depicted here. Who thought that when they read it as a kid? Yes? Okay. And you're like, why did God do that? Like, why is that a detail in the story? Yes? All confused by it? Okay. What's being depicted is a posture of cowering, cringing fear. When it says, on your belly you shall go, what, the, what, what uh, Moses is picturing for us, what God is picturing for us, is the serpent, Satan, in a position of weakness. And when it says, all the, you shall eat dust all the days of your life, it's actually where we get the term, another one bites the dust. It's a picture of defeat. Snakes don't eat dust. They eat rodents and stuff. That's not what's being talked about here. This is an image of the fact that the fight's never going to be fair. Before the fight, he begins to even tell us about the fight. It's not fair. And it's not fair in the best possible way. But there is going to be a battle. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Now what's going on here in this word offspring? And this word offspring, this word seed is actually 
one of the most prominent themes in all of Scripture. Because what goes on from this point is there are two lines of people. There are two types of people in the world. There are two lines that follow. There is the line or the offspring of the serpent, and there's the offspring of the woman. And the Bible actually talks about the offspring. We actually understand the language it talks about, uh, the way it kind of talks. Um, The offspring of the woman are those who trust in God. And all throughout the Old Testament, there will be Israel, and within Israel, there will be the remnant. There will be this group of people that truly trust in God. And that will be the line of the woman. And everyone else... The offspring of the serpent, people who are called those who follow the prince of the power of the air, are those who don't trust in God. And they're, uh, you know, we're Presbyterians. We're not charismatic here. We actually are charismatic, but that's another conversation. Um, But you might think like, oh, we're the the staid Presbyterians, and we don't have a real sense of Satan and his work. No, actually we do. We have a very strong and robust understanding of Satan and his work. And it's the understanding that Paul has and that John has and that God has. Those who have not participated in the intervening and saving grace of God that brings us to faith are followers of Satan. And I know that's not cool and it's un-PC to say and it's not popular, but it's biblical. And it's actually biblical and it's also logical. Because what is Satan's agenda? To throw off the authority and the power of God. What is the agenda of all sin and disobedience in our life? It's the exact same agenda. To look at God and say, I reject your authority, I reject your goodness, and I don't trust you. The mindset behind all sin is the exact same mindset behind Satan. For all of those who have not trusted in Jesus, they are Satan's followers. We have a very robust sense of Satan and his power in the world. Now, how is this battle won? We see this offspring and we see these two lines, but then the end of the verse, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And what's being depicted here is, again, this is something we do, is we talk about the lines and we're talking about families and groups of people, but all of a sudden it starts talking about a single person. That there will be one person in the line of the woman who will bruise the head of the serpent and you shall bruise his heel. And the bruise to the head is obviously a destroying blow. It is a death blow. The bruise to the heel is a wound, a legitimate wound, but not near as destructive. What's being depicted here is our champion. What's being depicted here is not that we can construct a plan to save ourselves, whether it's liberal or conservative, a blend of the two. What's being depicted is that our hope for salvation is a third party, a savior, a champion. What a champion is, is it's who David is in David and Goliath. You might have heard the story of David and Goliath. David, uh, the Israelites and the Philistines are camped out on either side of the battlefield. Goliath comes out from the Philistines and he says, I'll fight your best man and whoever wins the battle, the one-on-one battle, wins overall. The other army will forfeit victory. All the Israelites are scared because Goliath is like nine feet tall. And... um, David, who is not a soldier, comes up and says, I'll fight Goliath. And he fights Goliath, and he wins. And when David wins, Israel wins. And that's why the application to David and Goliath is not, what are your five stones for defeating your Goliaths in life? Which we've all heard it preached that way. The point of the story is, God sent a champion to defeat the evil enemies of his people. You can't defeat your Goliaths, So he sends a champion for you. 
This is our champion in Genesis 3.15. The offspring of the woman that will bruise the head of the serpent and he'll bruise his heel. And what's interesting is after telling us in verse 14 it's not a fair fight, it's not a shellacking. You expect to see this clean, easy victory, right? But that's not what's depicted. The champion receives an injury. He defeats sin and evil, but the champion does suffer a setback. His heel is bruised as he crushes the head of the serpent. Now, why? Why is this? It's because actually in his bruising, that's how he defeats the serpent. In his own pain, that's how the serpent's defeated. It's, his injured feet. it's actually in his injured heel that he is far more loving than the liberals and far more just than the conservatives. It's actually in this picture where we see the law and we see love come together and fully exhibit it. Horatius Bonner is this English guy that is a phenomenal writer, and he has this book, The Everlasting Righteousness. It's changing my life. I encourage you to read it. It's all free online. It's full text. And this is what he says. God has sworn that he has no pleasure in the death of a sinner, from Ezekiel 33. But he has also sworn that the soul that sins shall die, from Ezekiel 18. Which of the two oaths shall be kept? Shall the one give way to the other? Can both be kept? Can a contradiction apparently so direct be reconciled? Which is more unchangeable and irreversible, the vow of love or the oath of justice? Law and love must be reconciled, else the great question as to a sinner's relationship with the Holy One is remained, remains unanswered. The one cannot give way to the other. Both must stand, else the pillars of the universe will be shaken. The reconciliation God has accomplished, and in that accomplishment, both law and love have triumphed. The one is not given way to the other. Each kept its ground. Each one has come from the conflict, honored and glorified. Never has there been love like this love of God, so large and so lofty and so intense and so self-sacrificing. And never has the law been so pure and so broad and so glorious and so inexorable. It's pictured right here. How God upholds both His law and His love perfectly. Jesus' own words in Matthew 5 is, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to wipe it away and say it's okay. I came to fulfill it and to uphold it. And not a single stroke of the law will pass away. See, he's actually far more conservative than the most conservative conservatives. Say that a lot. At the same time in Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, he's far more loving than the most liberal liberal. And it's displayed right here in Genesis 3.15. The champion saves us by being bruised. The champion defeats sin and Satan and deals a death blow to them by being bruised. The victory was his death at the cross. And in so doing, he's perfectly just and he's perfectly loving. This is what our champion did. He came and he kept the law perfectly. He loved flawlessly, everyone around him. With unending compassion, he healed people, and he fed people, and he never held a grudge, and he never hated his parents, and he worshiped the Lord with a pure and undivided heart, and he loved people who despised him and who were faithless. He perfectly upheld the law. He's more conservative than the most conservative. And this champion 
does this for anyone who would receive it. He offers to let you get credit for it. Paul calls it a righteousness that you get apart from your effort of keeping the law. Theologians call it an alien righteousness. It's not yours, it's someone else's, and it's taken, and it's put upon you. And when God looks at you, He sees perfect holiness. The way Isaiah says it in Isaiah 61, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Isaiah fifty four seventeen. You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. Because this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from Him, declares the Lord. We get credited to our account, Jesus' perfect holiness. That's what a champion does on our behalf. But not only that, he takes credit for your sin and rebellion. His offer is to go to judgment in your place, to receive the bruise, the crushing bruise that you deserve. And that is love. And this is far more loving than the most liberal liberal. Isaiah 53 describes it for us in very graphic terms. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. It was his stripes that healed us. We like sheep, have gone, like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him our iniquity. See, he doesn't say, it's all good. It's excusable. I completely understand. You couldn't control that. That's not just and that's not loving. Instead, he manifests love, not by, pretend, <laughs> by pretending sin didn't exist, but by fully embracing the dark reality of sin and judgment and taking the responsibility on himself to pay the price. We think love is not asking people to pay the price. That's what we think love is. That's indifference. It's actually hatred. Love is you paying the price for them on their behalf, and that's what our champion did. That's what Jesus did. Do you see... That he's more loving than the liberals. And that he's more just than the conservatives. It's perfect love and it's perfect justice. And they hold each other up together. If you're in Christ, brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, stop buying the lie that Jesus didn't do enough. That your sin might outlast a sacrifice. That's actually arrogance. His grace far surpasses your sin. You're not... Guilty before the law if you are in Christ, not for anything you have done. Because Jesus paid the price and you have received credit for His obedience. If you are in Christ, the verdict is in now. God has declared you righteous. The court is adjourned. And you're the only person still sitting there wondering if the decision is going to be repealed. And it's not. It's over. Jesus has come and he has died and his work is accomplished. The sin you do tomorrow has already been paid for. You cannot reverse God's judgment. It was by grace you've been saved through faith so that none of us can boast. And it's a gift from God. It's the work of our champion. He who knew no sin became our sin. He was punished for it so that we might become the righteousness of God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not just right now because you happen to feel it because you might be fired up about Jesus for a little bit. There's no condemnation. There's not tomorrow and there's not 10 years from now. If you're in Jesus, there's no condemnation. 
It's over. It's done. His work is complete. He's not surprised by the stuff you're going to be surprised by tomorrow about yourself. It's done. It's complete. You can't defeat sin and Satan. Your best liberal approach, your best conservative approach will not work. Your fig leaves aren't working. You're not buying it. We're not buying it. Most of all, God's not buying it. You can't cover up your shame. You can't go to enough conferences. You can't read enough books. You can't do enough small groups. You can't know enough theology or volunteer enough or be nice enough or cry enough or give enough. You can't despair enough. You can't be liberal enough or conservative enough. You can't be self-pitying enough. And when you're tired of finally looking at yourself and focusing on your guilt and your inability to change, stop looking at yourself. Behold, this is the one true God and He is good. What's more important than even discerning your fig leaves is actually discerning the fact that it's your instinct to make fig leaves. It's your instinct to be the agent of your own salvation. When you become aware of your sin, our impulse and our response is immediately to look around, see what we can do, and gather around us to make it better. Hear the good news. Jesus came not to save the righteous. He came to save sinners, and I'm the worst. If you haven't trusted upon Jesus and you're still trusting in your fig leaves, God is coming in His Word to you tonight. And He offers you the sweet grace of once and for all forgiveness He is offering to declare you innocent once and for all. And all you have to do is actually finally rest, take your gaze upon yourself and place it upon Him. And the appropriate response is, okay, what do I do now to make sure I don't lose this thing? The appropriate response is to sing. So let's pray and then let's do that. 